afternoon, everyone. I'm Joss Tantrum. I'm a partner with a firm called Terra Affinity, uh, sustainability strategy consultants and things like that. Uh, I've been asked to moderate the, the session uh, just to uh, sort of start off by framing the debate. Really, it's uh, I've, I've called it scarcity to abundance because to me that's a bit the catchy one that embodies driving value, blah, 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 blah. But essentially what we're talking about is how companies, different types, are looking at the challenges of uh, scarcity, whether it be uh, looking at material substitution, Following that, we're going to have what we hope will be a, a sort of useful uh, Q&A session. Uh, we want it to be much more interactive than I think we've had this morning. Uh, so we want more chat if you're comfortable to do it. I'm quite aware that after lunch, uh, people get tired, myself included. So hopefully you won't go to sleep and we'll have a nice uh, conversation in the next uh, 45 to 50 minutes. So just in terms of you know, framing or defining the territory. Uh, broadly speaking, we're, we're talking about how companies respond to changing circumstances uh, and, and the need for developing new business models, so new means by which to generate and deliver value, to deliver utility. And, and broadly speaking, in, in my perspective, there's the issue of scarcity. So are there, are there materials, are there products that are based upon materials that are actually scarce or would be scarce if, we, if we're looking at expanding production or, or going beyond the sort of three and a half to four billion people that are currently serviced by multinational businesses towards the seven to nine billion people that we're going to have over the next few years. And also I'm going to focus a little bit on, on what we call the dissonance between price and value. Uh, and the challenge whereby something can be, uh, you're getting price signals, but actually in terms of strategic analysis, you might be seeing that there are other challenges that there are for your production processes. A little bit about the idea of from scarcity into abundance. How do you arrive at, at uh, using materials in a way that allows you to carry on deriving utility from them over the long term? Any time I'll do it. Uh, essentially, this is from a piece that we did called Valuing Abundance, which is trying to say how do we actually value abundance rather than scarcity and how might that support the transition to 9 billion uh, capable citizens. And essentially what we're looking at, we've talked, and you may be aware of many of these sort of big picture global trends that there are, and, and many of them are, are, are essentially pointing us towards a future where, in terms of the resources that we depend upon, uh, we might be fighting harder for scarcer and smaller amounts of them. How do we respond to issues like this? Uh, and that really there's a sort of growing need when we're looking at materials management, we're looking at uh, the availability of raw materials, and we're looking at how we use produced materials and, and, and materials that have had investment put into them better. How do we start to do those things? And a number of concepts which you'll either be very aware of or you'll, you'll have heard about uh, are defining and, and being developed to uh, respond to these things. We heard uh, Joe Confino mention about Cradle to Cradle, which is McDonough and Braungart's approach to these things. We're talking and hearing more and more about the circular economy. Uh, we're looking at product to service, and if Miriam comes from Interface, they, they've focused a lot about the idea of product to service. How do you make sure that you're actually 
Are you selling product or are you selling utility of a product? And then there's things like ownership to leadership, where the sort of business model goes from selling stuff towards having a service-based relationship with, a, with a, uh, your client, uh, customers. So what is the difference between price and value? This is a nice quote from Warren Buffett. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. And broadly speaking, and slightly simplistically, we would say that value is, is, is price plus externalities, and those could be positive externalities or negative externalities. But it's important to emphasize the fact that value isn't always the same as price. And those of you that are very brand-orientated will know that brand resonance, intangibles, come in a lot to the idea of what a value of a company is that can't necessarily be explained by a simple price. So there is a difference between price and cost and the value that either you get from a material or a process or you deliver to your, your customers. And we're going to explore those things a little bit more. So economic price broadly tells us when something's worthwhile, but it sometimes struggles with some of these issues that we're dealing with in sustainability. It sometimes struggles to, to actually give us a price for systemic risks or complex risks. Climate change is a key one. We all, we all give rise to it in some ways. We all have a risk from it in some ways, but it's not necessarily on any one person's balance sheet, and therefore the price signals are quite difficult to read. The other thing that price has a challenge with is valuing the future. There's no particular, there's no well-defined means by which to actually value the future is more valuable than today. And in fact, in, in, in economics terms, we tend to discount the future. So how do we start to value materials for their long-term utility? And we're going to talk, I'm going to just briefly finish off by looking at utility. This is a very well-used quote from Buckminster Fuller. And what he's talking about there is, are we actually valuing the utility that has been put into the products, uh, the materials that we're actually using? And do we value those enough such that we're actually continuing to have access to the utility that they give us? Or are we throwing those things away after we've invested time and effort and materials and energy into those things? So if we're looking at utility, over that perspective, it's maximum utility over the maximum time not maximum return over the minimum time. So it's actually a very different perspective to look at. And in terms of the colleagues that we have today, they've got different ways of looking at that, perhaps with a much more specific product or material type focus. And that's looking, that's getting people to think about design, how, how are products designed, how are materials used within those designs. How do we start to look beyond product chains and looking at material chains? If things are very scarce, how do we actually look at value chain or material chain management of those things. And it might even ask us questions about ownership. If essentially a company wants to retain the use of a material that it's sold in a product, how does it do that? Does it do it through leasing? Does it do it, do it through developing different relationships with customers? And the question is how do we deliver this maximum utility for the most people over the most time? So broadly speaking, we're talking about changing product paradigms. How do we reduce waste through design? How do we look at waste in processes, waste in systems? And how do we get the most from the resource investments that we've made? So in terms of our, our experts for today, we have two of the three, and we may have another, but I don't know if we'll need her, because uh, while she'll be fantastically valuable, these two I'm sure will be very good as well. So uh, first I'm going to turn to uh, Alexis Olands, who's Senior Global Program Manager at Adidas to talk about her experiences. Hiya. 
Um, I was asked to talk a bit about what, uh, how do we look at waste differently regarding design and how does design thinking change, specifically around this concept of low waste. Um, we've got several concepts running right now in, in our product ranges that help us get to our sustainability goals and the low waste uh, area is a, is a category, is one of them. So I'm going to talk a bit about that today. Um, usually when I want to hear a story from others, I want to know where they come from. What was the origin of this thinking? Where does it come from? Because it helps me understand how they came to the idea. And for us, um, it's been a, a learning process over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, first, starting out in working in the supply chain specifically around developing workplace standards, um, as well as a restricted substance list. And we started very early on in trying to promote the transparency of that. So it was, um, we had the first uh, sports industry sustainability report, and then worked further through telling um, about what we were doing into more the product area over time. So there was a bit of this transition where what you see in 2005 is um, us starting to talk about how do we change all of our materials to be more sustainable. So we made a commitment with the Better Cotton Initiative to source 100% sustainable cotton by the year 2018. We started looking at specific products, one of which I'll talk about today is in the Better Place collection. I head up the sustainability team at Adidas, it's called the Better Place team. Um, and some of these product concepts uh, create changes that we implement across our entire product ranges. And then when we think about um, waste and we think about savings that we want to create, we think about waste in multiple formats. It's not always materials waste, it's not always um, chemical waste. We look here um, at water waste in terms of uh, dyeing technology. So we're trying to develop new technologies that will help us eliminate waste altogether. This technology is one where you can dye with no water whatsoever. So it's, it's about everything from starting in the supply chain all the way up through product creation and new technologies. So, like we said, there's lots of ways to reduce waste. We look into multiple areas when it comes to product. It's in the supply chain. So it's, um, like we were saying, about transitioning our materials from their conventional alternatives to bio-based, recycled, here it was the um, Better Cotton commitment. We also look into manufacturing. For example, with our knitted shoes, those have zero waste in the uppers. So what does the technology do to be able to get us to design new products that eliminate the concept of waste altogether? You know, the topic with virtualization, we're looking not only into the products that we make, but also the processes that we use to try and get those products out there in the world. In our industry, in order to sell products out there, you need to create samples to show people. And right now we've created a program that's about virtualizing that entire creation process. So we would have no samples by the end of it. And at this point in time, we're at about a one-third reduction in the amount of samples that we create. That might sound like something small, but our one-third of samples can sometimes be bigger than some of our main competitors in terms of amount of product that we create. So these are all good stories. The one I'm going to talk about today is about pattern. When we started looking into our pattern efficiency, when we design products, what's the material waste that you're leaving on the floor? 
And this is going to be a story about both apparel and, as you can see here, footwear. So, this critical area is about design thinking. And I'm going to start my story with a, a particular designer. She has recently become one of my favorite designers um, in the running category. And she was facing a couple seasons ago a problem of trying to design a high-performance running kit they could use in competition. And she had an 85% pattern efficiency in her range. And that means 15% of all the materials that we made, no matter how good the choices we made, if they were recycled materials, 15% of that went automatically into the bin because we had an 85% pattern efficiency. Now, as you can see here, 85 was actually rather good. Um, there are products within our industry that have less, that are at 75%. And this is quite normal within the um, apparel and footwear industry. Whereas she was struggling to get it beyond 85, and she tried to move it up and only got to 87 by moving these jigsaw pieces around and cutting cut lines so that they nested a little bit better. And frankly, 85 to 87 isn't very good. So what she thought about was saying, okay, I'm a designer. What if we started all over again? What's the most efficient shape you can create? Well, if you're trying to cut it out of long rolls of fabric, it's squares and rectangles. But those don't look very good when you try and make them into products. But she kept playing with this idea. How am I going to make a high-performance technical running kit, starting with squares and rectangles? And actually, once she started trialing this idea, she got up to, on the first run, 97% pattern efficiency. Now, this is great for multiple reasons. One is because we're saving the planet. This is lovely. On the other side, that gives you a little bit of break in your price because you're using more of your material. You're not throwing it away. So savings that we had, we could also invest back into making more of the kit out of more sustainable materials. So it had a side benefit as well to just eliminating the waste. But she had to make this into kit that could actually be worn on racetracks and function. And when you have squares, that doesn't work very well. So, went through mul multiple prototyping rounds, and one of the things that she came to was, actually, you can make some material, you can cut it out in squares. It doesn't have to stay in squares. So, stretchable inserts, tunable inserts that could go directly to the tightness where you wanted support, and, oops, sorry, and to um, expand in areas where you needed a little more give, this actually would help support the runner and would help actually support the muscle groups that you wanted to give a little extra edge to. So by the time we got to prototypes, it looked like this, which I was relieved to see because I'm a little curvy. I look a little bit more like that woman on over there. And they actually did fit. They supported, they fit, and we had great response back when we trialed this out with our consumers. Now, that was the apparel team. And in our world, apparel and footwear designers don't often talk to each other very much. They work in their own silos. However, this particular group was quite cross-functional in how they interacted, and the footwear designers caught wind of what the apparel designers were working on. So they started trialing out with a very niche product, a, a natural running shoe that was supposed to imitate how it would feel to run in bare feet. So a very flexible shoe. 
They created a shoe that used high amounts of recycled content in it that nested multiple pieces so that you reduce your pattern efficiency dramatically. So this is the element sole. This was the first prototype run. But they still had all this crap left over when they were making the sample. And the realization was this isn't actually very good. We need to get it to a next generation. You see the red shoe here, that's the next generation. They went through the element sole, the element voyager, and then the element refine. And what they got to by the end, this is the element voyager, is every single time they were bumping up to the next generation, they were upping the pattern efficiency, including more sustainable materials. And by the time you got to this, which was the element refine, they had gotten to a 90% recycled upper, a 95% pattern, pattern efficiency, and they eliminated the outsole altogether. They just got rid of parts that they didn't need. And it was by questioning the assumption of, why do you need to put an outsole on it? If you can get something that'll hold up and not wear down when you're going running, you don't need an outsole. So it was by taking the same learning lessons from the apparel designers and saying, let's flip this on its head. If you were to build a shoe from the ground up, what would you really need? As opposed to, let's optimize the shoe that we've already got. One thing that was actually interesting about this is, um, at first, this was a very niche product. It was something that people felt very uncomfortable with. It didn't look like a lot of our other shoes. So we were a little worried that this was going to be a great concept car, but it was not going to sell a lot of pairs. What they did is they actually shared with some of the folks on Hypebeast. They're, they care a lot about sneakers. It's fashion and sneakers. They sent a pair on over there thinking they look funky enough that maybe they'll think it's interesting. The Hypebeast folks picked it up, featured it, and all of a sudden there was all this buzz around these really weird-looking shoes. And the sales of this picked up massively because this had a story behind it. This had a meaning behind it. This had something people could connect to, as well as it embodied it by looking different. So looking different turned into an asset, not a problem. And what was even better about that is though this niche product turned into actually quite a good seller, which is lovely, this is one of our biggest selling shoes. It's called the Duramo. It's our standard running shoe. You know, sells millions of pairs every season. And this shoe, we have a, we have a ranking system internally in assessing the sustainability of the product. It has multiple levels. This one wasn't even coming on the scale at the beginning. Then what happened is the same designers sat down with the folks who work on this and said, you should actually take a look at this shoe that we just made, which is the Element Refine, and see what you could implement on this. This shoe in this Duramo 6, so this version of it, came all the way up the scale to being, we have a level that's called competitive with best in industry. It's one step below your concept car level. It managed to reach that within one season. We removed parts. We made a one-color outsole, incorporated more recycled rubber in it. We were able to massively drop the pattern um, waste that went in there. And this affected our entire product range because now this is one of our main sellers. So those low-waste concepts got implemented on your standard run-of-the-mill shoes. So this was a story mostly about the 
low waist range in particular. But what I want to leave people with, so my last slide, is to say what we learned through this process about design thinking itself, not just about these products and what we could apply onto another shoe if we sat some designers down together, but there's a couple of principles that I think would apply to anybody here, even if you're not a sports company. One thing we realized right off the bat is actually we have systemic challenges which are getting in the way of our being able to solve some of these problems. Take this one. You don't normally get information on your pattern efficiency until your product is all the way up production. It's pretty hard to know how good your um, waste, your loss of waste has been dropped. So how much you have improved your pattern efficiency early on, because you don't get the information. However, if you thought about it backwards the other way around, which is what is the most efficient shape to be able to achieve these goals, you get a much better result. So we tried to look at these systemic challenges whenever they crop up to say, okay, wait, 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 step, take a step back. Let's try and still keep getting more information earlier to improve our processes, but let's do it the other way around and go what would be the optimal shape and use that to inspire a new design. The other qu question for us had always been those niche products that you make, those concept cars, the ones that reach your highest level on your product sustainability scales, uh, are they really a good idea? Shouldn't you just be working on the big, massive mass sellers? And one thing that we found through this is actually concept cars do work for the specific reason that this concept car changed people first, changed people's thinking about what a shoe should look like, which we needed in order to sell in different designs, but it also provided lessons onto those other products that were our main staples, and those were even easier to transfer once we had a living model in front of us that we could apply down onto the shoe. And lastly, um, this was a quote from, from one of my um, senior executives. He was saying, anonymous best practice is not going to spread any ideas. What he meant by it is we're good at Adidas about telling a story about a specific product and what went well and then putting that story out there. We do it internally in our company, we do it externally. However, actually just anonymously sort of putting it out there without the people attached to it doesn't get a lot of traction in the company. What happens is the conversations, you see the developer up here and the product manager down here for the Element Voyager and the Element Refine, those people literally going around the company and sitting down and having lunches with their fellow designers and developers um, were the way that this concept spread faster in the company. This was already a target and already a, an objective in people's targets for that season, but it didn't spread the ideas fast enough or the uptake fast enough. What did was sending out ambassadors. And so then what we saw is it not only turned up in the Duramo, in our mainline shoes, in other business units such as women's training and in football. We now have projects all over the place because people went to go talk with the other one. So that's where I'm done. And feel free to ask questions. Okay. Hello, everybody. My name is Marco, and I'm the co-founder of Ginkgo, an Italian brand-new startup. And uh, this is Ginkgo, the first 100% recyclable umbrella. Lightweight, colorful, and flexible. 
with Italian design and what we call sustainable innovation. We have been developing Ginkgo during the past three years. We have designed it following the three fundamental concepts of reduce, reuse and recycle. I will explain you how we develop it, the problem Ginkgo tried to resolve and also where we would like to go the next steps. So basically the number of components has been considerably reduced passing from 120 you can find in the traditional umbrellas to just 20 in Ginkgo. And the assembling procedure has been simplified with integrated jointed hinges to minimize the chances of failure. The stretchers are the clearest example. They are obtained in a single piece of flexible plastics. The material and the patented geometry allow them to mend without deforming while the pole, the handle and the other structural elements guarantee the necessary strength and stiffness. Our idea was to create a long-lasting umbrellas, but also easily recyclable at the end of its life. To achieve this goal, we had to use the same sustainable materials for all the parts. We have chosen polypropylene, a common polymer that can be recycled in the in most parts of the world. From the canopy to the handle, all the parts of Ginkgo are made just in, just in polypropylene. The main problem that Ginkgo addresses is the underweighted impact of the umbrella on the environment. Different materials complicate the disassembling procedure and the need to collect the, the different materials apart make in fact the traditional umbrellas not recyclable with a pollutant and expensive disposal procedure. Basing on the data we have collected, every year more than 1 billion umbrellas are lost, broken or improperly disposed. 1 billion, it's a very big number. The first time I heard this number, basically we remain quite amazed. But we were even more shocked when we tried to translate this big number into something, into something tangible. Assuming 240 grams of metal per frame, one, million, 1 billion umbrellas means 240,000 tons of metal thrown away every, every year. It would be enough to build up more than 25 Eiffel Towers every year. Considering 0.7 square meter of fabric per canopy, it means 700 square kilometers of uh, polyester that takes up to 100 years to degrade. It would be fairly to cover an area the size of New York City every single year. So we designed Ginkgo using uh, just one material, using uh, just one production technology and make it uh, to be easy to assemble and disassembling. So basically, Ginkgo is already suitable to be inserted in a cradle-to-cradle -cradle system. But Ginkgo is already, is naturally eligible to be manufactured with zero-impact biodegradable polymers. We truly believe that this could generate a virtuous cycle that will reduce the impact of the umbrellas on the environment. Thank you.
no 240 grams of metal in the traditional umbrellas in one billion umbrella one billion so means 240,000 tons Ginkgo is just 160 grams of plastic that's why I told you it's lightweight thank you St stylish good value um, Italian design Italian design <laughs> so so before we all rush out and buy ginkgo umbrellas, uh, just to, I'm just going to summarise a little bit. I mean, we've we've heard some fa two fantastic examples. Perhaps looking looking uh, at the same issue from different dimensions, uh, both focused a bit around product, but also looking at the product in a, in a wider system, from the production system, uh, and, and looking at the materials used to produce a trainer, and, and how actually that sort of icon or halo perfect trainer then, then actually uh, uh, influenced the wider product range. And then also looking at, at an issue perhaps that, I mean, I hadn't, before I looked at Ginkgo site, I hadn't even really thought about umbrellas, other than having bought some cheap ones and only getting two or three uses out of them. So I, I, I sympathize with the, but thinking about the amount of waste, uh, and this goes back to the point I was making about utility. How do we make sure that once we've invested in, in turning a material from a raw material to something useful to someone, how do we make sure that, that that investment actually has a longer life than perhaps some of these, these products do in the, in, the, in the first place? So we've talked about specifics, about pattern efficiency. How do you cut things out of materials? How do you look at designing from the ground up? So you're actually starting putting the trainers of, of yesterday to one side and saying, how, how, how could you make a trainer? And then we've looked at, okay, well, umbrellas are pretty good things. How do we actually look at those in a different way so that we solve a, a problem. So those are some of the themes. Um, I've got a quick question to Marco. Yeah. What, what was your initial motivation? And uh, So let, let me put it another way. How interested are the umbrella buying market in, in, in the sort of environmental or waste issues about? about? What's your, are you selling it on, on the sexiness of the, the ginkgo umbrella or the challenge of other umbrellas? Well, Honestly, I have no idea if the market of the umbrellas is interested or not in the eco-friendly and the environmental problem. I'm sure that uh, maybe not the market, but the, the world should be interested in, in it. So I'm pretty sure that uh, if I am a customer and I can choose between buying a traditional umbrella or buying uh, maybe also a better umbrella, a long-lasting umbrella, a cheap umbrella. And uh, I mean, the idea behind this umbrella is you help the environment. I, I give you uh, an item that uh, you can recycle it. I think it's, uh, this is the, the, the key point. And similar question to you, Alexis. In terms of the, the, uh, the original element refined, the sort of very high spec one uh, that obviously has a, a, a more of an environmental message in terms of its resonance. In terms of the Duramo one, which obviously is integrating many of the, the design lessons that you learn, how, how much are you selling the sustainability dimensions of Duramo to, to your customers? Um, we often have a, a saying that sustainability often comes after the comma when we're talking about a product. It's the second line that you'll read. It's never the first line because 
usually when people are looking for products, they're trying to, they're a runner, and they care about, you know, what does this shoe do for my running? And then they want to know afterwards, and how is it made, and etc. So um, there are a few niche products that we have where we will sell them specifically with sustainability as a headline. That's not normal, not often for how we put our products out there. Um, but for the Duramo, and there are certain products where in the press release it'll be in the second paragraph, or uh, on the e-retail site it'll be within the technologies area. You'll see right next to your description of your product, and underneath it'll give the stats. And various parts of technologies like different cushioning, blah, 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 will also be there, including the sustainability elements. So we, our target audience is 14 to 19-year-olds, and um, this is how they prefer to consume the information. That's what they've told us. Um, but what we need to always provide is that they can have a click-through. They can go somewhere else to keep learning more, and they can go to next levels and next levels. However, if you try and give it to them all up front, they get turned off and they walk away. So it's a couple of lines. You can click through, go on, find out more, find out more stories. But um, yeah, they don't want to read it in the headline. And just throwing back at, at open to the audience, are there, are there any uh, questions on the, the uh, particular um, examples that we've heard, uh, any dimensions, or stories to share about this idea about the business case for making change within a process versus, you know, how much you can go above the line and, and, and communicate that. Uh, would, does anyone have any uh, points they'd like to make or questions they'd like to uh, raise to our uh, experts? Yes, gentlemen at the back. There is a mic, actually. <coughs> Thank you. Um, hi, Dwayne Barricker. Um, just wanted to ask um, Adidas, do you calculate the cost savings that you make because of those design changes, it strikes me that it might aggregate to a big number. Um, and kind of inspired by caring, do you measure the change in environmental impact from that kind of design efficiency? And I want to caveat that with the Puma EP&L report relied on a whole bunch of assumptions. So aggregated averages, which are not necessarily accurate especially as you get more efficient, those averages become more and more misleading. Is the question clear? I think so. Okay. If the answer doesn't really get to the full meat of what you're saying, then ask me something again. Which is, um, I'm glad you actually brought up that example because we do it a little differently. Um, typically, because of that same averages issue and in calculating the footprint and the accuracy of the data that you can get on a mass scale, um, we're not interested in expending the time and effort to try and calculate up to totals. So we, do, we don't do an EP&L. We're not interested in doing that. What we do instead is we focus a lot on life cycle analysis. So we use specific, very representative products from different areas to go into a deep dive in a particular area if it's a particular type of football boot that's constructed in a certain way, we have multiple other ones that in our product range that have some similarities, things that we can tie in. So we do a deep dive on that particular one, learn what we need from it, and then apply it onto others. Yes, in order to keep track of what we're doing, we do keep 
um, and also to incentivize behavior, our product managers, our senior executives have sustainable product targets and they have to meet them. And if they don't, they don't get their bonuses. So um, that's what we spend time calculating. Um, sometimes to evaluate whether or not to go into a specific initiative, you know, whether it's important to adopt a certain technology or prioritize something else, then we'll do a sort of deep dive again based around life cycle analysis to decide which. But we don't spend a lot of time doing an EPNL. So there was a first question that you had, which I've now forgotten. Cost, yes, cost. Um, sometimes the savings are there. Sometimes they're not savings. Sometimes they're costs. So um, we're pretty transparent internally with people about uh, whenever we create case studies, what the advantages and disadvantages are, how they could optimize them. Um, one thing that we see over time is there's multiple areas in which we find new sustainable innovations. Some are from efficiencies, some are from replacement, like swapping out materials, doing it with something else, and some are from whole new technologies. And where we see is the technologies um, are expensive at the beginning, and you invest into them and they go down over time. The efficiencies start paying off right away, and there's stuff that any good business should be doing anyway. Shouldn't be leaving cash on the floor. And regarding the replacements, oftentimes, sometimes you can find sustainable materials that cost less. Usually not. Um, so we actually sort of cross-fund them. So we use one thing to help pay for another. Um, and sometimes we just spend the extra cash. So, yeah. Excellent. And there was another question. I'm going to go for this gentleman over here because the other one's disappeared. Uh, hello, my name is Tom Doman. Uh, I was interested in knowing whether uh, it could be either, either Tinko or, or Adidas. Uh, you think you could, you're able to influence the, uh, the afterlife recycling uh, of your products? Because like the, the umbrella example, you made your umbrella recyclable, but you don't know yet whether it's going to be collected, whether it's going to be really recycled. Uh, how can you influence that part as well as, as, as a business? Well... Actually, we don't know how to collect the broken umbrella, but I'm pretty sure that people are aware that it's a good thing to recycle. So, I mean, if you have in your hand a broken umbrella and this umbrella is, can be recycled, I think you will try to find a place to throw this umbrella. I mean, my umbrella is 100% PP, so basically you can throw it away uh, and, and throw where you throw the bottle, the glasses, not the glasses of glass, the glass of plastic, of course. And so I think it's uh, a question of mentality that people should have and should be ready to, to, recycle, to recycle as much as they can. But, but the problem is that the recyclers will not take your product in their, in their supply chain, uh, well, at least in, in most collection systems. They do recycle bottles and so on, but they don't have a system for, I think, really wonderful products like yourself. Um, but you're not allowed to put your umbrella in most collection systems again, together with the bottles uh, uh, in the same collection system. Why not? Um, it's usually due to, to legislation. And if you, if you visit the recyclers, 
most of the recyclers like you have closed loop here in, in the UK who does most of the PP recycling. Mm -hmm. um, he will systematically throw out everything that's not a bottle or, or um, uh, anything else in his, in his chain. And because uh, because they don't know Jinko. Yeah, indeed, because they don't know Jinko. So I think there's also, uh, that's why I think there's some, some um, I think the, the brand itself also need to take responsibility on what's happening with their product after, after usage. Maybe like a small player, it's difficult, of course. Maybe, um, yeah, that's also maybe to, to add to this. So um, this is a typical problem that you have in any recycling stream. Uh, us similarly trying to get shoes and clothes recycled, the same problem. Um, it's not only the collection mechanisms, which you have to make sure that there are collection mechanisms. Here you have the advantage that there's one already in place. But then it's the education system for the recyclers themselves. Um, and I would say um, one thing that there's some things we've done in Adidas as a company and there's certain things that we've tried to join up with the rest of the industry in order to get some, for the second point, some awareness from the, um, the recycling stream on how to use this. So from the first end, there are certain markets in which have no access to um, secondary clothing, secondary clothing market. So what we've started is, in, for example, in Brazil, and um, we have some in the United States, where you can take your product back into the store, and you can leave it there, and we'll get it recycled. So we'll channel it into the streams that can get it recycled. Um, from a general education issue, or even at least in our industry, we don't have the advantage that you have of having a widespread network already um, in every country. So. Um, we're a member of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, and for topics that address these uh, mass issues that are not our normal area of business, customer use phase, like how do you get them to wash their clothes at a lower temperature and bring them back at the end, we work on these through some collective impact projects. So um, we not only have been in that organization working to develop a, a measurement system, how do you measure sustainable products, but what are the initiatives that we could all go out there in terms of consumer education, in terms of um, connecting up certain recyclers at the end? And that's how we've been approaching it. I think the if we had this advantage, you guys have a great situation where you can drop it in the in the bin that's already there. I wish, you know, not every country has that. So um, for us, so I think probably the the. The advantage that we have is we already have an organization, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which we can all work together. And I don't know if there's an umbrella association, so it might be a little harder for them to reach out to everybody. But, you know, you can try and make it work. Can I say another, can I say another thing? I mean, this is just the first step. I know that the road is long. Uh, in our idea, there is also a kind of recovery system. I mean, when you break your umbrella, you just... Uh, go to um, a shop or simply go in front of a, vending, of a vending machine, you can drop it inside and you receive a kind of bonus coupon to buy another Jinko because I can recycle all the, plas all the plastic. But, I mean, it's a long uh, way, I know. We are just a brand new startup, so... I think there's a sort of theme that emerges from both of, both of those last comments, which is about the idea of sort of own, moving from ownership to leadership. I mean, have either of you, you know, do you, do you want to be a footwear services 
provider that you know you're not sell, you're not you're selling access to the latest footwear. I mean, in the same way, uh, is that something that you've looked at that you're not actually selling the product but selling the utility of the product? We are in some ways. Um, granted, these are not the this is not our main business. This is not our mainstream business, but we have membership models where people are Adidas members and they want to get access to information about. Um, moving to a model where um, the product is no longer just a shoe. The product is everything that goes around the shoe and the whole product is the sport. Like People come to us because they like playing sports, not because they have always and ever wanted to wear three stripes on their feet. I mean, there are some of those, thank God. But um, people want to play football well, and so that's why they buy an artist's product. And this initial steps into that area that we have where we're helping people better footballers. Um, that is giving us a model that we're looking at and what the future evolution can be. Um, it's There's one caveat I'll put on top of that, which is this idea has been around for a really long time. It is really hard to make it work because, surprisingly, reverse logistics is a very difficult thing to do. And um, getting... You have a system set up to go one way. So trying to reverse engineer it to go back the other way is rather tricky. And so we are getting there with baby steps, but um, we're sort of we pretty keen on that model and we're already some of the way there. Yeah, and it also depends on the, you know, how valuable or scarce the things are that you're trying to recover and as well. And unfortunately, there's things. a lot of polyester already in the world, so our materials usually aren't too expensive to begin with. So you not only have to get the logistics to work backwards, but they don't pay for themselves at the moment. So um, we're trying to work around that problem too. We're coming towards the end. Are there any other burning questions or points that people would like, like to make? I want to make sure that we don't overrun. Uh, any other key questions that people have? Yes. Actually, we're in the process of looking into our next business plan. So for the next, we do kind of five-year plans um, or three to five-year plans. So actually, it's a fairly central to it from every area from technology, like the manufacturing processes that we use, as well as to the product uh, ideas themselves um, and sourcing, etc. So quite central. Um, in terms of a sustainable product that we have in our ranges, I'd say, you know, if you're totaling up apparel and footwear together, over half. Um, and, you know, of course there's varying levels there. It varies from everything from like 20% recycled all the way up to 100% and all with bells and whistles. So, um, you, I think you have very different challenges in terms of making a product sustainable when it goes from footwear or apparel. In footwear, you have lots of different parts, and so you can play things off against each other in order to um, incorporate more sustainable materials and, uh, you know, 
save money on one part to spend it on the other part. In apparel, you have um, very few parts in your product, and most of it is material cost. The industry is also um, very old. It doesn't uh, have some of the new technological advances that footwear manufacturer does. So um, when we're building into this big next business plan, these are very different types of challenges that we have to tackle under the same umbrella of sustainability. So we're taking very different approaches for each one. It's like the recycle bin. <laughs> uh, okay, I think I'm going to call it to a, a close. If you'd all be kind enough to thank our, our fantastic experts for the insights that we've had.